this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. We're doing the thing. We're doing the thing. Yeah. So, uh, welcome to Feature Creep, colon. Built-in microwave. Semicolon. Uh, design challenges volume two challenges or part two? two part two follow up to the one that we just yeah yeah had to leave off because of time constraints right i mean these are these are kind of independent like we can we might reference that one a little bit but i don't think we're you can listen to either one it doesn't matter there's yeah. not a particular order no. here's just some other design challenges or problems um or problems with design or problems of design I right. think is or or challenges of design as opposed to challenge. Um, yeah. We sort of <laughs> they're we, not with design, but they're of of the domain. Right. Um, the the conversation that led to the point that we're at now is we were sort of discussing relevance and uh, the the other sort of topic that we wanted to touch on was adapting to technological changes or changes in technology and uh, how that sort of segues out of relevance into that topic right so um i think it's kind of uh, like i i interpret this a couple of ways but um chris you should probably speak to it because you're a designer (laughs) and you you a lot of your design work relies heavily on technology um yeah i mean from from my perspective i think um this is something I've, i've actually struggled with personally because when i was going to school i um i started my undergrad in electrical engineering and thought I was going to, you know, design computer boards and, uh, do some programming. Actually, I never really liked programming. It's uh, terrible. No, no, one no, no offense, it. Ned, but no, no, please. <laughs> all all I offense. Think the worst job ever. Yeah. All offense. Intended. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I always struggled with it and, and I thought, um, well this, I, I'm never going to be good at this. I never want to do this. So I went with visual design and, um, and within the last, uh, 10 or so years, I've actually started kicking myself because, um, uh, that's where everything is going. I mean, you know, technology is driving everything and even visual designers uh, nowadays to get a good job, you have to know how to do some programming. Right? Mm. And that's what employers expect of you. And, and if you don't know how to do, you know, some of the, the back end stuff, then um, good luck. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's better something, be really good at visual yeah. design. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it's always something I thought that, um, I should have held on to. I should have stuck with some, some of that technology background. Um, you know, even though I use technology every day, I mean, obviously, you know, that's how we do our work with computers, but, um, to understand and to be able to build that technology, I think, uh, could have improved my career. Maybe Hmm. I'm not sure, but, um, certainly could have opened some other doors, um, so I think, um, I don't know, I think being on top of technology and understanding how it works and how it affects our culture and society is really important to designers and to, to design as an industry in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it is what sort of rules our economy and, and everything, everything. It's interesting <laughs> um, that you mentioned 
this from like an individual perspective, because one of the topics we kind of discussed uh, or talked about discussing, I should say, um, was the uh, concept of being well-rounded or having well-rounded design. And we considered that less a problem of design and more a problem for designers, like the people doing mm-hmm. the work of design. And so we didn't actually decide to flesh that out into its own topic. But I think that kind of is what you're saying here. Yeah, I think design as an industry is becoming more multidisciplinary. It, it, mm-hmm. Right. Multi-skilled um, reco- yeah. requires more isn't like from an like individual designers have to have more skills, but also like the industry as a whole is becoming more sure. uh, collaborative and more. Um, there's a lot more crossover between disciplines right now, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think you have to have this sort of multifaceted experience to be able to excel in this industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it's tough to. I think that applies across a lot of boards because. Um, boards boards yeah uh, yeah it, it applies across a lot of different industries like it's the issue just generally is being like a worker especially in like knowledge work like you're you have to know how these other processes work like even even if you're not as a software developer i need to know at least the existence of a full stack and i need to know what that looks like and what and and what that even means when someone says oh you're a full stack developer well that's bullshit what does that Thank mean you. like i i know <laughs> yeah. of a stack that i've developed <laughs> there's other stacks over there a stack but um you know and i got a stack of books back here like you know what do you want to where do you want to go with this but uh but more specifically like i think what i mean is that um that multidisciplinary like multidiscipline or like multi-skill level or multi-skill requirements and it kind of fits into also one of the other topics we were going to bring up which was the Mm -hmm. um like a holistic view or what what yes the holistic perspective of design so or the the problem one problem or one challenge of design is maintaining a holistic perspective right and so being able to see the bigger picture Mm -hmm. of what you're attempting to fit your design into or where you're trying to kind of design for like you're saying hey i'm going to create this thing and it's going to have these properties and it's going to exist in this domain knowing everything else and what's going to interact with it like understanding that people are going to interact with it it's going to have to fit in the ecosystem of technology which is what we're kind of trying to talk about right now is like having technology is going to change and it's growing and being able to keep our perspective on like what direction it's going in um, is important to your design because it's, you're going to lose your design can break really quickly if technology shift from out, out from under it, which is something that's really common in software development. Yes. And you have to kind of lock down a certain amount of technology and say, well, this isn't going to move for the next six months while this gets developed. And then you have to hope that when you get to the end of that six months, that now it can run on a platform that still exists. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not, you know, and that's... I think that kind of goes back to the, like, balancing thinking and doing, too. Like, don't sit on this problem for too long. Yeah, you've got to get on with it yeah. um, if you're going to mm-hmm. do it at all. Mm-hmm. Because pretty soon it's not going to be relevant and it's not going to have any, you know, the technology that you were focused on is gone passe. now. It's, yeah, it's passe or no yeah. one's using mm-hmm. it anymore. Um, you know, social media platforms are a really good example. It's like you're designing something for a social media platform and then that social, <laughs> social media platform's gone now. Right. 
Uh, were you designing a product around Vine? Sorry. Right. No more Vine. <laughs> Does anybody even know what that was? But it was real popular right for a real short period of time. So mm -hmm. anyway. I think uh, paradoxically, having a holistic perspective allows you to understand your specificity more. Sure. Um, so having a big, not quite so specific picture of what you're trying to accomplish or what the getting a handle on the problem allows you to subsequently become more specific about how to solve it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the lack of specificity for me, a lot of times comes from a basic misunderstanding of what the problem is, mm -hmm. like a mm -hmm. super basic misunderstanding or right. not misunderstanding, but just inability to like clearly define what it is. Yeah. To like and, frame all the parameters yeah. that affect uh, what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's becoming increasingly more important to have this holistic perspective of design. I mean, we're not designing in these silos anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you know, going back to the idea that designers nowadays have to be multidisciplinary and have right. all this experience um, it, that kind of lends itself to a holistic perspective. Like, like you're saying that how like, um, you have to understand all the, the, the things that uh, are affected by your design and how, how it all works together uh, mm -hmm. to make something that's going to work. Um, yeah. And I don't think it's good enough to not be cognizant of those things. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think if you're not thinking about like what downstream effects is this going to have outside of what I'm sure it's going to have, like uh, what are the unintended potential consequences aside from the consequences that I want to have happen as a result of the design that I'm designing for this problem. Like, uh, I, I would argue as, as the ethics geek that you're not doing your job. You're failing in your moral responsibility to produce good design. If you are not trying to at least anticipate downstream effects of it beyond mm -hmm. what you're actually trying to solve for. Mm -hmm. And that comes with experience, I think, too. Like, young designers don't think that way mm -hmm. inherently. I know I didn't when I was first coming out of college. I didn't think I imagine it's hard to that. because yeah. you, you, you have to have... Um, I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying that you'd have to be very deliberate to expand your view of everything mm -hmm. and add that experience. Um, I think that that's something as a... When I was younger doing software development or, you know, designing software, the times when I was most successful were opportunity. Like they were times when I had the wherewithal and took the time to seek advice from someone who had experience in that problem domain. Not, not like, Hey, help me solve this problem, but just someone to just say, Hey, you're missing like some real critical problems here like you're sure you're yes. looking at this very narrow scoped because i don't have that experience i right. wasn't and you don't always have those opportunities or you're also kind of like you know like you chris like most of the time i'm just a cocky asshole and i didn't really know what you know <laughs> I, you know i not always i i like to think i wasn't too bad but um i was probably you were probably worse i was probably worse um and and that i think kind of uh, part of the problem i think is that as you learn as you learn more and more about a specific domain of knowledge or you look at a particular scope of things, you start to realize like how much information is there and how little you actually know. But early on, you can get this real false sense of like, oh, I've got a real handle on this, which you do. Mm -hmm. You've got a handle on it. 
but that right. handle is connected to something so much larger than you really can get, mm -hmm. a, you know, until you really have the scope of the thing and you realize that, um, no one person can just know everything there is to know about, about the thing. About the thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, when I was studying biochemistry early on, I, I was like, wow, this is really pretty fascinating. And then, you know, you start to learn about, um, genetics and you learn about like the, you know, metabolic pathways and everything else that's going on and all of the biochemistry of human life and our life on the planet. And you can start to be like, wow, we really know this stuff and I could know all these things. And then right. a little later you realize, oh, it's so like just <laughs> drop in the bucket to the Nothing. like complexity of how everything works and yeah. or doesn't work and still manages to eke out and continue to exist in the way that it does. And mm -hmm. um, got that one person's whole genome sequenced epigenetics. What? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I think I've I think I've kind of made my point anyway. So it's, yeah. I think so, that comes back to this holistic view of design. I mean, you know, that's, that's not something, having a holistic view of design is not something you uh, have right away. It's something sure. you gain over time, something mm -hmm. you get with experience. Um, right. It takes time to develop that and to figure that shit out. It does. Um, it's also really uncomfortable. At least it yeah. was for me. I, yeah. I remember when I first started um, really pushing my programming career and was like, okay, this is the path I'm going on and um, and I'm going to be doing this for a living. I It was a couple of years where I was just, I had this like craving in the back of my mind to find, I felt like I was not understanding something kind of fundamental and I was like really fine trying to find any book I, I was I kept looking for the right book that was going to explain it. So I read lots of books on programming. I've just skimmed through them. I read detailed, you know, blog posts and, you know, deep dive everything I could to figure out what I just felt like I was not grasping some concept or not. I hadn't learned something about it or I didn't see something and it wasn't, um, it wasn't immediately obvious, but at some point it became clear to me that what I was struggling with was just the realization that, um, a, it's a lifelong long learning process. Like anything you're, you don't, you're you never not, arrive, you never arrive. Yeah. And right. B that, that uneasiness is just the realization that, um, it's not a solved problem. Yeah. At all there's so many problems still there's so many issues there's so many choices to be made and that's what i was struggling with is, with is that i just felt i felt as if if i read the right thing or someone told me the right thing or i had the right experience then i would know how to answer these questions mm -hmm. uh -huh. and it was just being able to get to a point where i was comfortable with not knowing the answer mm -hmm. yeah and realizing that i had to spend a lot of time iterating through failures before you hit on something that works yeah. and then recognizing that as something that works and being okay with that and being comfortable with the idea that this is not perfect. There are better iterations of this, but this is good enough and I have to right. move on because I can't waste my client's time or my own time if I'm just working on something for myself. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an important lesson to, to learn. And like you say, yeah, it's a hard one. Yeah. Very difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's so very does uncomfortable. That mean yeah. Does that mean me. that 
in order to yes. become really good at design, <laughs> you need to, it comes with experience. Like you can't expect to be a great designer right off the bat because you, I, I'm always, I, I, I hate to kind of make like a real generalization like sure. that. There's always going to be someone who, um, is just really exceptional very early on yeah. or, mm-hmm. um, just, just, Maybe we can phrase it differently then. Like, is it, is it likely that the more experience you have, the better you will become at designing? I think what I would say is that there's a huge amount of value in having experience. Uh And so Mm -hmm. the more of it you can have, like for better or for worse, like failures are a huge part of experience and something that's really like have build up your failures, have them. Don't be like, not only should you not be afraid of failure, but you might want to seek it out if you can afford it. Right. Um, it is a luxury in some ways because it is there's a certain competitive nature of existing as a human where you need to earn a living and you can't mm-hmm. have a trail of trail of failures in a career where it's like people look at you why would I hire you right you're mm-hmm. you're actively seeking out to be terrible at this right. um, <laughs> but if you can find ways in your spare time to work on projects for yourself um, or things uh, even in I, even in the scope of things, if you can find ways to put bounds on it and say, okay, like this is my room to fail, mm-hmm. go out and fail like purposely. Like, you know, you can just, Chris, as you had mentioned in a previous podcast, you'd said that, um, sometimes even if you think it's already going to not be a good idea, just make it anyway and prove to yourself okay. that it's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. That like, you were right about why that you right. were right about. Right. Yeah. Because even that experience is, I, I think that it, I think what I want to say or how I would phrase this is that experience is invaluable and it's very important. It doesn't, it's not everything. Yeah. But, um, and thankfully because of language and the ability to communicate with people, even if you're just starting out on something like draw on other people's experiences, Mm -hmm. take their word, you know, like don't take their, everyone's word with a grain of salt. And, maybe you need to go have those failures yourself to really prove it to yourself, but don't shy away from like, you know, standing on someone else's shoulders for a minute so you can reach a little higher and see those things. That's, that's what we're all doing. Yeah. Ultimately. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think, um, experience is just a huge weight that you can lend to, um, anything you're doing if you have experience with it. Um, yeah. And with experience comes confidence and, Sure. I think that's a big part of doing good work, being confident in your, your decisions and your uh, abilities to fail and um, learn from those failures. Right, um, right. And yeah, I think the longer you do it, the more confidence you have. And uh, yeah, I mean, it is kind of hard to say that like um, uh, the people with more experience are better designers. Um, maybe that's not always true, but... Um, I think there is always room for improvement. Um, and sure. that comes with experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I even think like, you know, Bruce Mao could be a better designer 10 years from now, but just because of more experience, Sure, you know, but he's great now, but I mean, who knows, you know? Yeah. Um, right. Right. Yeah. So the, the last sort of thing that we identified to talk about that may take, the most time is the concept of uniqueness in design. Right. As a, as a challenge of design or a problem in design, well, I a think, problem uh, I think of the, design. The thing that attracted us to the, the, the topic or the bullet point was that we all interpreted this very differently when we heard it. Like yeah. uniqueness, like, Oh, what does that mean to me? Right. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to jump in there first, mm-hmm. Chris, if that's all right. I, cool. When I first thought of it, I just thought, well, that's kind of... I just immediately thought, well, that's not a problem of design. Like, that's not a problem. That's just a... F- it, a feature, it's a facet or a feature yeah. of... It's some kind of subjective quality of, is that unique or not? That's not a problem that necessarily... Unless you seek it out and say, oh, this has to be... Um, this you know, this design has to be unique. Like it's what is the advantage of uniqueness? I guess if there's no advantage to it, then you well, there can be, for it. there mm-hmm. can be, but there's not always like for me, it's just, it's one more parameter. It's not necessarily, this is a fundamental issue of design right. or, but I think when we were talking earlier and I'd like, like want you to get in on this is like, I think you have a different perspective, Chris. And I think it's something that I like, I'm just not even thinking about, and I want to know like where you're, where you're <laughs> where coming are you? from. It's not like I feel like I'm like I have strong opinions about this, and you're all wrong. It's like no, this is what I thought about in my own vacuum, like in the you know absence of anyone else's influence in my head at the moment. What is what I had to work with? But, right. right. <laughs> anyway, that's a long-winded explanation of you know. Let me be more defensive of my position, more ephemeral, so that there's really don't pin like me down. Kind of I'm not committed to a little here. This. Yeah. Right. Um, well, I mean, it is is sort of a uh, subjective thing. I mean, how how do you define uniqueness? I yeah. think, um, I mean, certainly from a marketing standpoint, every company wants to be unique. Yeah. Um, and any designer that's working for a company is always tasked with, you know, make me something that's unique so I can stand out from my competitor. Right. Um, I mean, it's always the case, every single project, anytime. Um, so that's one way to define it. I mean, I guess, you know, uh-huh. Uh, the struggle is how do I design uh, a new shampoo bottle that's unique? Sure. It's a shampoo bottle. Who cares? Right. Um, right. But it's, you know, they still want it to be unique. So how do you do that? Um, I, I think that's that's one struggle that I've experienced. Uh-huh. Like know? in that case, wouldn't the fact that it's like the fact that it is just it's a shampoo bottle who cares the only thing that differentiates it from another shampoo bottle is the uniqueness of the design appearance because the sludge right. inside is the same right and yep. we <laughs> the I illusion of choice yeah i mean certainly from a, like you know you go to the supermarket and it's you know 15,000 choices of the same shampoo essentially right. well what right. what smell do you want what smell you know? do you want what right. packaging design do you want what color speaks to you yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you like the, how much would you like to pay for that? Right. (laughs) Yeah. You you can pay anywhere from like $2 to $50. Uniqueness. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can buy some of those bottles out of the trunk of a car that a lady sells outside of the salon where she works at (laughs) because you're only supposed to buy them in salons. Yeah. Right. Et cetera, et cetera. I never did that. I don't know what we're talking about. Sure. Moving on. That's another thing. I think the other, I think the other side to uniqueness too, is that, um, uh, as a designer or as a design firm, you're trying to get clients. Uh, how do you stand out from other design firms? What right. makes you unique? Is it your design process? Is it your yeah. design aesthetic? Is it your, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, 20 stellar designers that, yeah. uh, that you, you hired? Um, a squad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I think like my gut reaction to this one initially was it, it kind of like threw me back into um, a lot of the work I do is for corporate clients. And the reality is, is that I should appear just unique enough as an individual to appeal to them, but also 
not. I need to look exactly mm-hmm. like the same kind of individual that mm-hmm. they've seen other companies hire mm-hmm. right. to That's do the their guy software. We need. Yeah. Well, they, yeah. you know, my other, you know, CEO friend had this guy that they're doing and he's not available. I need to find me one of those. Oh, this guy looks the part. Mm-hmm. And then the software that I develop needs to look, it has to have the same look as, as other software that already exists. So right. it's a weird, yeah, it's, yeah, I can't, I can't be like, Hey, so this is a great, really much better design and interface. And they're like, well, that doesn't look like my Microsoft office product. Right. So it, it doesn't feel, me. it scares me. It's not professional. So there needs, right. so a lot of the design interface I do is to make it look to fit into the ecosystem of the software they already have in place. And there's lots of value in that beyond just the sort of superficial. They have a lot of, most of the, most of the time when I write software, it's for like 2000 plus users in a company and they're all going to be using the software every day to like do some accounting thing or any, yeah. some kind of glorified accounting. It's always the same. doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Um, and so it's important for it to look familiar it, mm-hmm. it lowers their cost of training if they're if their employees are resistant to use it or it, it lends itself to mistakes because they're using some other software that looks one way and then every time they pull up my software it looks really unfamiliar and it's confusing mm-hmm. and so there's it's a real issue but i don't think that that's necessarily um i don't think that goes against what you're talking about um i think that that's just a matter of um there's still that fundamental issue that I have of like, it needs to be unique enough that it stands out and that people Mm -hmm. choose me over someone else. Well, right. And you're also working against something that is hopeless in that you're trying to fit and not fit people's confirmed and unconfirmed biases all at the same time. Yeah, (laughs) sure. Yeah. (laughs) Just familiar enough that they want to hire you, but different enough that you're, they're giving them an advantage. So would you say that's a wicked problem or a wicked problem? (laughs) wicked definitely i I, so i was thinking about how to explain this like auditorily Uh so they would like be funnier um or just at least more interesting so so i was thinking okay so how you know you have a candle and that candle has a wick in it Mm -hmm. right and so that candle you know w-i-c-k it's got a wick in it Right. right and so then i was thinking about um well what you know the wick of a candle also wick as a verb right so what's the uh, past tense of that verb? Wicked. You wicked up. Right. And how would you spell that? W-I-C-K-E-D. Right. Right. But that's not wicked. That's wicked. That is wicked. <laughs> Which we found English out. English is fun. After yeah. struggling for some time. So to give our listeners a little backstory, we were um, doing some research on problems of design to kind of come up with the topics of this podcast and discuss about. And um, I'd kind of... I was like, oh, what's a wicked problem? And I'm saying this to myself in my own head because I'm reading W-I-C-K-E-D. Right. And for some reason, I didn't read wicked problem because that's too colloquial or like yes. it's too slang laden for the topic that I was reading through. Yes. And I was like, a wicked problem. That wicked sounds very... Because it was something kind of mathematical that it led from. Like they were talking about math problems or some kind of problems yeah. in like some other domain. And then um, they were saying, what about wicked problems? Not wicked problems, wicked problems. Wicked. And so then 
uh, Chris and uh, Meg, I said, oh, have you guys ever heard of a wicked problem? And they're oh, like, man. what's a wicked problem? And then my lateral thinking just spiraled out right. of control. Like, well, a wick is a bunch of different like threads that are bound together and like, yeah. woven together so that they actually have capillary action when they drop <laughs> sure. wax, but then they're burning away at the same time. Like I'm reading way right. too much. We just go this. off the deep end. And so then I, I'm like, well, I, let me read the Wikipedia article to you. So I, I like pulled up the Wikipedia article and it's describing wicked or wicked problems as I've now come to realize what it actually, how it was actually pronounced. Wicked problem, and they were just talking problem. about um, where the, the phrase came from, but what a wicked problem is, is just something that um, it's ill-defined. It has, it's very difficult to solve for because the problem is constantly, it's a constantly moving target. It's oftentimes around politics where Mm -hmm. the solution to the problem requires many, many individuals to change their mind about something, which is not a solution, right? You can't reasonably expect to just say, Hey, everybody, it'd be great if we all thought differently about this. Right? Here's the solution to your problem. We just have to do everything completely differently. Yeah. That's not really a solution, especially in the, yeah. So, um, so wicked problems are as opposed right. to like a tame problem, something that is like fairly stable and, e- and it tame. may not be an easy solution, but T-A-M-E. it is. Yeah. Tame. T-A- yeah like a tame, tame kitten. Right. Like a, a tame. Yeah. Wicked lion. Like a wicked lion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, I that was I just found that um kind of hilarious that I kept saying, What is a well, wicked we were oh, we really, I mean we were all thinking we, Yeah, and so you what guys could were it like, be? But why is it called a wicked problem? And then I read the descriptions and they were like, But that doesn't say why it's called a wicked problem. Just like, someone who's coined the term. What does this have to do with candles? <laughs> and then when you think of it as wicked, you're like, Oh, well, you don't need to describe it nearly as much now. It makes sense. Those are wicked problems. <laughs> wicked. Yeah. Uh, yeah anyway so that was a was a pretty fun adventure right there um yeah so uniqueness is is uh i i'm still kind of unsure of if i really agree that that's like a a kind of a a real problem of design Mm -hmm. um i think that's a problem in design if that's something that you're addressing but i don't i don't disagree with you chris in the sense that um in some ways, like if it's not a unique solution or it's not a unique design, then it's not a new design, which means that why did you do it in the first place? Right. That's that's an interesting interesting perspective. Yeah. <laughs> I mean a lot of the a lot of the client like I've had a lot of clients that in the end they don't end up hiring me because we have a couple meetings and I'm I say things like, Well, what you're really asking for is Microsoft Office or you're asking for um, you know, this other, this Oracle database software that already exists and this company, you know, sells mm-hmm. it. Like if you're asking me to reinvent it for cheaper, I may be able to squeak in there, but it's going to be, it's not, Yeah, I'm not doing you any favors if you haven't at least right. considered some of these other solutions yeah. that already exist. Yeah. And there's a, a there's a obvious danger to trying to develop something that's unique just for the sake of making it unique when yeah. there's something else out there that's already going to work. Right. Um, right. You know, why, why waste the time and effort? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, and then I guess where my thoughts go immediately is if all you're doing is trying to get a market share as a result of redesigning something that's already been designed and you know for a fact that that need is being met there's if you're not improving upon the Mm -hmm. solution at hand you're just proliferating solutions in order to gain some kind of a capital 
advantage, right? Uh, market mm-hmm. share, something like that. Right. Then I would argue that that's unethical. Right. Although it happens all the time. It does happen. I it mean, happens a lot. And I, I, what, it's yeah. But that, for well, me, that doesn't make it any less unethical. Right. Um, is right. that different from the concept of um, doing something from a competition point of view? Uh, uh, you know, you could argue that all cars are the same. Why is there any more than one car company? And why is there any more than one kind of car? And I don't think that's what you're saying. Um, I'm I, like, I think in, yeah. in terms of software, um, you are, you might do different version. Like you might, you might grossly be addressing the same issue. Yeah. Um, but you're trying to, you're, well, you're bringing you, I, I guess you're, you think you're bringing uniqueness to the table. Right. Um, here's a good example. Sure. When you redesign the like interior of your Ford F one fifty to be a different color than the previous year, you're not actually solving for anything utilitarian. Right. You're not, that's not going to necessarily sure. get you further down the road, no pun intended, towards like <laughs> achieving the goal of solving the problem of transportation. Like, right. but I mean, I and this is one that made like a lot of people really upset. That I would argue that the Tesla truck is extremely unique. I got a lot of strong opinions. About <laughs> I that. know you do. I know you do. Uh, I really uh, don't. But I think that is absolutely Someone tackling does. the same problem of. individual transportation and maybe hauling some gear around or whatever Uh in a radically different way than it has been approached so far. I I mean, and that's because of technology because there was a huge technological advancement or several rather that came as a result of their work in the space industry that informed how they could better design a truck to do the thing that it does for way cheaper, longer with better capacity. And I'm, I, I love it. I full disclosure, I think it's great. I love that truck because I think it does very it attacks very simple problems very clearly and with very demonstrable results. But it completely fails at fitting the perfect picture of a truck in my head of the cookie cutout of what a truck should look like. Right. Mm-hmm. And so therefore it's not a truck. But it's I'm unique. Not, I mean I don't really, I'm not actually <laughs> arguing that. But, yeah, but it is unique. I yeah, uh, yeah so I'm kind of thinking about what you're saying and wondering if maybe um, we might be able to kind of rephrase that in a, or think about that in terms of um, to kind of stick on the one, the F-150 redesign, yeah. like interior redesign of any car or any, any product, car, yeah. any like refurbish, like, you know, oh, we're going to like change the colors of it this year. We've got 16 different paint colors that you couldn't get last year. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that is the real issue there is that those are motivated by selling more trucks that don't necessarily need to be sold. Yeah. If there's already an inventory of people who own trucks, um, you know, you're 2017, you don't need to now get a 2019. Um, the reasons that I would buy the Tesla truck are the reasons that I have not bought a truck so far. Yeah. It solves all of the problems for me about trucks that, former trucks have failed to accomplish. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm like, I am not a truck person. I'm a Tesla truck person. Yeah. Because that particular unique vehicle solves all the a that- bunch of problems that I have and need a truck to solve that trucks currently don't sure. do a very good job of. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Um, yeah. Well, 
Uh, anyway, um, so I think in that case, like I think, it, in, interestingly, <laughs> I'm sure Tesla had like a lot of yeah. Uh, te- Tesla and SpaceX do an impeccable job of designing things. Their design sure. is amazing. Yeah, it's functional and it's gorgeous. Yeah, and so like I kind of feel like the Tesla truck may have been unique as a sort of its uniqueness arose out of um the fact that the approach to solving the problem of trucks was so unique in and of itself like they're solving trucks with space shit yeah and so mm-hmm. because no one else has ever approached the truck problem from an aerospace perspective mm-hmm. they are by definition by default, without even trying to, they're approaching and going to make a unique product. But then on top of that, they've also done all of this super thoughtful design about how it should look, function. Uh-huh. It's not accidental either. Like, I just, sure. I'm fascinated by it. Whether it, I mean, I think they're going to be successful. I, th- I have yeah. no reason to believe mm-hmm. they're not going to be successful right. at marketing yeah. this vehicle because it just is so utilitarian. I, don't think, I think they have already marketed it plenty. They don't need yeah, to they market don't have to it do anymore. anymore. <laughs> but, um, in that case, like I think I'm sure that they were conscious of the fact that they were designing something very unique, but also it didn't really matter because yeah, it was unique to start with. Anyway, right. whatever. I'm talking yeah. in circles now. Well, I think there's a benefit. I mean, obviously there's there's a, a benefit to that to designing something that's unique, even though there's not really uh, a specified problem to solve. I mean, I sort of think of like the Tesla truck, like that. Yeah. Like. There was really no reason to redesign the whole truck experience, but they did it anyway. Yeah. And Elon was like, fuck you. Here's my truck. And everyone's like, holy shit. I didn't realize a truck could do that. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I I think, I think we learn a lot from that and like future trucks from now on are always going to be looking to that truck and being like, oh, how can we make our truck like that truck? Mm -hmm. It is unique. Yeah. There, I mean, he's, he well it's it's been placed in a it's a a way marker it is a way marker and yeah and everything is going to be measured off of it like how close or far away are you from that truck yeah that's exactly what i was just thinking yeah whether you it doesn't matter whether you like it or hate it both of those are relevant to that truck yeah i mean apple did the same thing with the ipod and all sort of stuff like there was no need for any of that shit but apple steve jobs is like Fuck it, here it is. And yeah. now it's everywhere. Yes. And every every mobile device we have now is based on that idea, that yep. original idea. Um and there's huge I mean it's huge, huge value in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well that was I mean, that's all <laughs> of the little talking points that we had parsed out for yeah. part one and part two, since this is part two. Yeah, I mean, I think we could call that a successful, you know. Yeah. I feel really good about this. Yeah, me too. We're doing yeah, super too. important work right now. Yeah, super important work. We are so lucky. We're changing the world. Sometimes I wonder if we're just taking this too seriously and it needs to be, like, really what we need to be is just almost intolerable to listen to most of the uh, time. Yeah, well, just wait till I unveil my better butt. <laughs> The great unveiling of my brand new better than ever butt. Yeah, everyone's gonna want what. It doesn't matter if people want. All butts will be measured as the <laughs> yeah uh, from the proximity to or distance from. Yeah, the your new better butt, butt my better butt. butt. Yep. I'm gonna start the better butt bureau just to confuse people. 
they're going to call the Better Business Bureau and want to pay for a good review somewhere. And I'm going to be like, sorry, all we deal in is butts here. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I whatever butt you come up with, I'm going to double the clefts in it. Nice. <laughs> and then market that as a, yeah. Excellent. Twice the clefts. Twice the clefts. <laughs> Yep. One of our favorite phrases at home is, but what about your butt, though? <laughs> but what about your butt, though? <laughs> <laughs> I've got butts in everything. there twice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Both spellings. Right, right. right. Got all the butts covered. All the butts are covered. <laughs> <sighs> all right. I'm going to call it, so we're going to say goodbye. Okay. All right. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Love you all. Thank yeah, you. Love, love you all. You. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs>